I do want to turn your attention, though, to Mark chapter 11, uh, the passage that Pastor Nathan read at the end of Mark chapter 11, as we are endeavoring to continue in our series going through the gospel of Mark. Uh, We are in part number 26. I'm going to do my very best not to sort of preface this sermon with a really long or lengthy introduction because uh, we have a lot to cover. Uh, I want to cover, my goal is to cover from verse 27 of chapter 11 all the way through uh, verse 37 of chapter 12. Uh, That might seem like a really crazy thing to do, but we're going to try it. Uh, And I want to try it because I think this entire scene uh, goes together, it belongs together. And and I want you to see that uh, as these questions are brought before Jesus, the answer was in front of them the whole time. And I think that's what jumps out to me through this text. As we have uh, verse 27 through verse 37 of chapter 12, we have this long succession of questions brought to Jesus. Questions uh, by these authorities, these religious authorities. They're questioning him on all sorts of matters. And of course we know that these questions aren't genuine. They aren't really looking for a real answer that would change their minds on a certain topic or what have you. Actually, each of these inquiries are brought to him to sort of entrap Jesus. They want to trap him in his words. And, and, and that way they can expose him for being a fraud, for being a false teacher. That's the purpose of all of these questions. They're trying to ask him something and then have him say something. And they can go, ah, gotcha. They can bring him to trial. They can bring him to a phony trial at that. But they would be able to sort of bring him before an authority and have some sort of case to make. That's what is motivating these leaders in their question. And I want to walk through this. And I want you to see again just how Jesus perfectly and patiently answers their questions. But he also is hinting the whole time that the answer to all of their questions is right in front of them. Right under their very noses, so to speak. <laughs> Let's look really quickly. In verse 27, down through a little bit later, we have first uh, the question of authority. A question of authority. Look at verse 27 again of chapter 11. Then they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? To do these things. Remember it's still the third day of Holy Week. As Jesus has already uh, made his triumphal entry. And the next day after that he has cleansed the temple. And this is the day after that. The third day of Holy Week. And Jesus and his apostles are in the courts of the temple yet again. And they are here confronted as it says in verse 27. By the, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. These three are parts, are representative parts of the governing body known as the Sanhedrin, which will become very, very significant in the days ahead. It was a very large conglomerate of powerful, influential people, mostly religious, but also political. And by the way, these are the very ones who are plotting to destroy Jesus. They've been doing so from the very beginnings of his ministry. You can go all the way back to chapter 3 and verse 6. And right there, this is when the plot to kill Jesus begins. And here we are, nine odd chapters later. And they're still seeking out a way to get Jesus. To destroy him. 
And they come asking him, what authority, by what authority are you doing these things? Are you saying these things? No doubt referring to that scene, that incredible scene that Jesus put on in the temple the day before when he was tipping over tables and driving out the temple attendants that day. In that case, their question is valid, so to speak. They are the ones who are predominantly concerned and responsible for the temple. So if there's a guy coming in and disrupting the temple, you want to know by what authority he's doing those things. By what authority are you disrupting this place? And of course, they are probably more concerned with with their bankrolls being disrupted. But nevertheless, they are concerned that the temple is being disrupted. And Jesus' run-ins with these fellows throughout the last years, a couple of years of his ministry, makes this a scene full of just religious and spiritual tension. And so they ask him these questions. By what authority are you doing these things? You see, they wanted to know. They wanted to know if Jesus would stick to his guns, stick to his claims, that he is a divinely sent messenger, that his errand, his mission was given to him by God, or if he would denounce all of that and he would reveal that he's just been an imposter all along. Because then they got him. Then they got him for blasphemy. They can take him to court then and they can try him and they can put him away. They're looking to discredit him. Primarily because his teachings were threatening them. But we'll get to that later. But I love how Jesus answers this question. He's asked, by what authority are you doing these things? Look at verse 29. And he says, Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question. Then answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. He points them back to the, the ministry of John the Baptist, who at this point has already been uh, executed. But John, though, was widely recognized as a prophet, as a prophet of God who spoke with authority. The Sanhedrin didn't like that, though. They never really made a public proclamation one way or the other concerning John the Baptist's ministry because uh, they were afraid of what that would mean for them and their positions. And such is why Jesus is pressing this question to them. What do you believe about John the Baptist? Where did he get his authority? Who was he representing? Was he a lunatic like you believe that I am? Or was he representing the Lord? You see, now... (laughs) Now, these chief priests and scribes and elders, they are in a dilemma. They're in a pickle, so to speak. <laughs> if, they, if they say, uh, on one hand, if they, if they affirm John's uh, authority as coming from heaven, then they must also affirm, and they have to admit that John's claims were true and authoritative. And what was John everywhere proclaiming during his ministry? That Jesus is the Son of God. The Lamb who would take away the sins of the world. You can see how that would be detrimental to what they were trying to propose. If that is true, then his message is true, which is bad for us. On the other hand, though, if they deny John's prophetic authority, then they would be running opposed to all of the popular opinions regarding this prophet. Because again, look at verse 32. 
It says, all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. It was a widely recognized fact. It was widely regarded that he was a prophet. And so Jesus actually turns the tables on these guys. What do you say? Where was his authority? Because he knows. If they affirm it, they have to affirm who he is. They have to rightly recognize the authority by what he is teaching. And such is what leads them to reply, we do not know. Look at verse 33. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. Of course they did know. They did know, but they didn't want to admit it. They didn't want to admit what they already knew in their minds, in their guts. Why? Look back. Look at verse 31. They're reasoning now. They reasoned among themselves saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people. Did you notice that Mark explicitly cuts off their, their reasoning in mid-sentence, in mid-sort of forming of their logic? He interrupts their thought and interjects why they are reasoning this way. Why? Because they feared the people. They are worried about what the people would say. They are worried about what the multitudes would say. I think this is the most revealing description of the thoughts and the logic and the motives of Jesus' opponents. Why did they oppose Jesus? But not try and be so boisterous in their opposition because they feared the people. They were worried about what they would say or do. They were worried about uh, losing their positions of power and prestige and prominence. More than they were about heeding and hearing the truth. The truth that was right in front of them. They feared people more than they feared God. So they say "We, we do not know. I, I, I believe that they were very embarrassed by the course of this conversation. What began as, as sort of an approach with Jesus, uh, with all sorts of brashness and confidence in sort of their own intellect, they end up looking like, like cowering puppies with tails between their legs as Jesus leaves them and says, neither I'm going to tell you where, your, where my authority lies. I love that he answers that way. Look again, verse 33. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He's not being rude or impolite. or He's not just uh, being uh, sort of uh, um, mean to them in any sort of way. He's replying this way because he knows that they already know in their hearts. They just don't want to admit it. Why? Because they feared the people. And yet they are predetermined and predisposed to reject Jesus' claims. Why? Because they are more concerned with their prominence and positions more than they are the truth. And Jesus shows them that. He shows them that by telling them this parable. They question him on his authority. He evades their question. (laughs) Because they should have already known where his authority came from. And then he tells them this amazing parable at the beginning of verse or beginning of chapter 12. In my Bible, it calls it the parable of the wicked vine dressers or the wicked farmers or the wicked husbandmen, depending on your translation. And here in this this parable down through verse 11 of the or uh, verse 11 of this chapter We have relayed for us perhaps 
the most obvious parable that Jesus ever uttered. Its meaning is so clear and apparent, in fact, that the, the Pharisees themselves, these very ones who are questioning Jesus' authority, they know, in fact, immediately after it is spoken, what it means. They don't like what it means. <laughs> they don't like what the, what the parable tells them and shows them and reveals to them, but they know it. If you look at verse 12, just jumping ahead. It says, and they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. They know. They don't like what they hear, but they know what it means. Well, what does Jesus tell them about? Well, look back at verse 1. He says, then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, he says, and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, and built a tower And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent them another servant. And at him, they threw stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another and him they killed. And many others beating some and killing some. Therefore still having one son. His beloved. He also sent him to them. Last saying. They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves. This is the heir. Come let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him. And cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Startling story. One that the Pharisees knew right away was actually talking about them. Jesus tells them a story about a man who plants a vineyard and he sets everything in proper order that this vineyard should flourish. He doesn't leave anything to a fault. He sets it up and it should flourish. He leases it to these farmers who are assigned with keeping it. And yet when the vintage time comes, when the time for the harvesting of this vineyard comes, they kill a series of servants. Yet not right away. Did you notice the progression? From beating that first one to wounding the next one to then uh, being okay with just outright killing whoever comes to them to try and reap from this vineyard. Progressively violent acts against these servants of the vineyard owner. And then, against all odds, the vineyard owner determines... That of course they would surely respect and listen to my beloved son. But the farmers instead they conspire against him. And instead they believe that if we kill him this vineyard will now be ours. We can claim ownership of it. We can have the rights to it. And so that's exactly what they do. They kill the son. And then Jesus asks the question. He turns it on them. What do you think the vineyard owners are going to do? They've killed his only beloved son. He says, but of course. He would come and destroy the vineyard owners. And take the vineyard away from them. And give it to others. 
He would exact justice on these wicked and undressed farmers who had disregarded and disrespected their original purpose and calling, which was what? To tend and keep the vineyard. Jesus is pressing this point to them. And you notice at verse 10, he presses and questions their recollection of Scripture. Have you not even read this scripture? He says, the stone which the builders rejected has come, or excuse me, has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In that way, Jesus aims to show that he himself is the beloved son that was sent to the vineyard to reap his father's harvest. He was that beloved son who, when he came, the vineyard, uh, the vine dressers rejected him and brutally would beat him because of their disbelief. And in that way, that makes the wicked farmers Israel itself, who had lost its purpose, lost its calling as those who were meant to tend and keep the kingdom of God and let it flourish. But instead they determined that they can have it for themselves. They can have it their own way. They can have it on their own terms if yet we just get rid of the sun. Because we are the ones who are in authority. We are the ones who are ruling. And Jesus is reminding them that this has been prophesied from old That the cornerstone or that the stone that will be rejected will actually serve as the foundational chief cornerstone of the coming kingdom. And that rejected stone is me. That brutalized son is me. I'm the one you rejected. I'm the one who's going to establish a new and a better kingdom. A kingdom, as he says, that is given to others, which I like to think means exactly what he's been saying from the beginning. That is not just confined to Israel. It's a kingdom of the whole world, of all peoples and tongues and nations. He's going to give it to them. Because it's going to be a new kingdom enacted through a new way by this king, King Jesus. This, of course, doesn't sit well with them. Their authority has been upset. Look at verse 12. And they sought to lay hands on him, but again, they feared the multitude, for they knew him. He had spoken the parable against them, so they left him and went away. Question of authority, but I must hasten. Look at verse 13 of chapter 12. Down through verse 17, because here we have a question of loyalty. Look at what happens. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. No mistaking what their motivation was. And when they had come to him, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. For men, or excuse me, you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? See here, they had failed in their attempt to get Jesus caught in his words for blasphemy, which is what we just looked at. Here, now they're trying to get him sort of caught in his words for some sort of uh, loyalty to the governmental powers. Trapped in his words for some sort of semblance of anarchy. 
this time they question him about taxes. Certainly a hot button issue. Notice in verse 13 though it says that they sent. It's not just a happenstance or an accidental thing. It's something that they were planning and orchestrating. They were wanting to catch Jesus in this way. And notice also again who comes and questions him. Pharisees and Herodians. Which you might remember were the very first ones who were beginning to conspire against Jesus back in Mark 3 verse 6. And once again we have to point out that these two parties should not be associating with each other. In any other terms they would not be uh, this close to one another. They disliked each other. Pharisees opposed vehemently Roman influence and rule. The Herodians were, this is okay, it's making us better. And yet they were setting aside their political and religious differences because they shared a frustration with this Jesus guy from Nazareth who was messing everything up. So here they come and see, let's see if we can trap him by admitting to some sort of treason against Rome. Then we can get him. And here they want him to admit to that. And ironically, they think they have him caught with this question. Should we pay taxes or should we not? And here, understand that if Jesus says, no, do not pay tribute, do not pay taxes, it would look like and seem like he is advocating for some sort of insubordination against Rome. That he's just a rabble rouser who's seeking the people to revolt against the government. That he's some sort of anarchist. And that's not Jesus. That's not what he's implying. And yet if Jesus answers yes, pay taxes, it would seem to indicate that he doesn't agree with the messianic patriotism that they thought he should agree with. That he's not really concerned with Israel's national interests. So they think they got him. They think they got Jesus trapped. (laughs) But Jesus sees through their talk. Look at verse 15. I love it. It says, But he, knowing their hypocrisy, knowing their fakeness, remember at the beginning of verse 14, we know what you are, that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of... They're just flattering him. Speaking flowery words, trying to butter Jesus up, and Jesus sees through it, and he actually proceeds to circumvent their entire deceptive dilemma by affirming obedience to both. Look at what he says. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, verse 15, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius, that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. See, Jesus, he proceeds to frustrate them with this assertion that their responsibility as the people of God isn't to one or the other, it's to both. That you obey God, yes, more than men. But that doesn't mean that we do not obey men as well. Yes, God is preeminent. And our responsibility is to Him first and foremost, above all. But obedience to God and obedience to government are not mutually exclusive ideals. In fact, they are harmonious here in this text. 
That just because you have faith in God, that is not an invitation to revolt against authority. This, of course, didn't sit well with them. They were frustrated. Many, perhaps, in the crowd were frustrated by Jesus' words. Why aren't you, Jesus, like those zealots who want to run rampant on the Roman government and overtake them? Jesus is saying again, this is not how my kingdom is going to be established. Render to Caesars what is Caesars, and to God's what is God's. They marveled at him for his silencing of their questions by upholding responsibility to both. So they can't get him on blasphemy, they can't get him on loyalty. Let's go next, look at verse 18. We have a question of fidelity. Look at verse 18. Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection resurrection, came to him and they asked him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take up his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying he left no offspring. And the second took her and he died. Nor did he leave any offspring, and the third likewise. So the seven had her, and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. So here we have this, another party comes to Jesus and uh, tries to trap Jesus in another sort of uh, ethical conundrum. They ask him this question. The Sadducees are asking it now this time. Sadducees were another sort of political party. They were members of the Sanhedrin. But they were fiercely opposed uh, to the Pharisees. The the Sadducees strongly denied the fact of the resurrection. Which is why Mark includes that little uh, parenthetical statement there. Who say there is no resurrection as he says there in verse 18. But they come to Jesus and they propose... What I believe is probably a favorite scenario for them. You know, they didn't like proofs of the resurrection. So to try and dismantle the ideas of resurrection life, they proposed the scenario. If you believe, if you really say this is so, what do you do in this case? Is what they're arguing, essentially. It's an interesting quandary for sure. At least as they ask it. In their minds, they think they have Jesus caught. That you can't make sense of the resurrection if this is really so. But Jesus proceeds to show them that their their quandary, their spiritual questioning of him, is nothing more than just a baseless academic exercise that has no uh, real, true spiritual insight. And in fact, that's exactly what he says. Look at verse 24. And Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken... Because you do not know the scriptures, nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly Mistaken. See, Jesus' words are sharp and cutting. That these scriptural authorities actually have no scriptural expertise at all. You are greatly mistaken on your views of scripture by even asking this question. 
And note that when Jesus says, those who rise from the dead are like angels. I want to be clear. He's not saying that we turn into angels when we die. That's not what Jesus is saying. We don't get white robes and wings and play harps in the clouds when we pass away. Because we're angels now. In fact, that fallacy dies, I think, and goes away if you read some of the New Testament books. In fact, Hebrews specifically mentions the fact that angels are not superior to human beings. They are actually human beings' ministers and servants. And in fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, it talks about the fact that angels are curious about the fact that humans get to experience grace. They are curious of us. We don't turn into angels. We aren't graduated into angels when we pass away. We are humans even still in the afterlife. Humans, yes, that are glorified and perfected, but humans nonetheless. And by the way, Jesus is too, just to throw that in there. He doesn't lose his human body when he is in glory. The body that rose from the dead is the same body that is mediating for us in glory right now. Making intercession for us with the Father. But again, I think that's what Jesus is suggesting here. He's suggesting the fact that you are misunderstanding the resurrection by thinking that it's all material. But in reality... As he says, for when those who rise from the dead, they are made to share in the glorious spirituality of heaven. We aren't given to marriage and all those sorts of things as he's saying there. I don't particularly or definitively know exactly what heaven is like and no one does. But guess what? What he's saying there is that we will be in the presence of Jehovah himself. And if you do not think that God who is powerful enough to raise those from the dead and bring them with him into glory by the power of his grace. If you do not think that that powerful God can rectify what in your minds is some ethical quandary. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Because our God, he is bringing us into his presence. Because why? He's the God of the living. He's the God of all who have passed away. And they are with him even now as it says in verse 27. This is who God has always been. From the very beginning he has been a God who has been motivated solely by death and resurrection. And he's bringing that before their faces here. But I have to hasten and move because I'm taking too long. <laughs> Look at verse 28. Because we have the fourth question that's brought to him. The last question that is brought before Jesus. We have a, a question about his authority. And then a question about his loyalty. And then a question about his fidelity. And now here we have a question of piety. Look at what happens. Then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together. Perceiving that he had answered them well. Asked him which is the first commandment of all. Here we have the last question, the last of these formal inquiries brought before Jesus as he is teaching here in the temple. And it's brought to him by a scribe, a, a copyist of the law, often called a lawyer, depending on your translation. And he comes and asks Jesus, which commandment is the greatest of all the commandments? 
which is the greatest of all. You know, many commentators will interpret this uh, scene in the scribes' inquiry as one which is, um, which, is a gen- which is genuine and true. That he was genuinely seeking an answer. And perhaps that is the case, but I'm not so sure. Especially when you consider Jesus' answer to him. But let's look. Look at Jesus answers him by quoting the oldest confession of faith there is. Often called the Shema. He says, the first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. He sums up the whole law. All of the commandments of God into loving God himself and loving your neighbor. He affirms rightly what was believed in this day to be true. That this is what it's all about. And the issue then becomes, how do we do that? And look at verse 32. So the scribe said to him, well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth for there is one God and there is no other but he And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It sounds really pietistic, does it not? This teacher, this scribe seems to know what is true and what constitutes real faith. But look at Jesus' answer. Probably the saddest phrase in the scriptures. Now when Jesus saw that, he answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far. But he's not in the kingdom of God. He's close, but no cigar, as the saying goes. You're not far from it. You're grasping the hints and the shadows of the ideas. But you don't have the full picture of it. I think Jesus is not approving the scribe's piety. I think he's showing the scribe, just like the rich young ruler, just that he was not going far enough. You are close. You're not far, but you're not in. You almost get it. The answer is right in front of you because entrance into the kingdom was not predicated on pious devotion and ritualistic sacrifices and all of these sorts of things. It was only dependent upon humble faith that the Messiah is none other than God's own son. The vineyard's owner's son is this king. And this has been the point all along. Because that leads me to the last scene and I'm going to try and go through it Adequately, but quickly. (laughs) Because look at verse 35. After all of these questions, all of these questions on the same day in the temple, then Jesus turns the tables. And he answers essentially all their question with this one scene. And then Jesus says, verse 35, answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. 
See what Jesus does? He flips the scenario back at them and asks them a quandary of his own. And it's indeed curious, is it not? The fact that how could the long promised king of Israel be the son of David coming from his line, be in the king of kings line, and yet he is declared as the Lord, as Jehovah, as the one above all. How can David make this claim? How can David make this assertion? That the son of David is the Lord and how can he also be his son but yet be king and prophesied from old? And here this is what it always comes down to. That Jesus is man and yet God at the same time. Perfectly balanced and perfectly encapsulated in flesh is this God in front of them. This is me. I am this Messiah and King and Lord of all. The son of David. Yes, coming from the line of kings. That I have the rightful messianic authority. And yet I am also the king of all worlds and universes and places in all of creation. Because I am the one who spoke them into existence. And I am here in front of you. Urging you to believe in me. The vineyard's owner's son is the king of all creation. He has come. He has come not set on just liberating his people from tyrannical rule. He is God in the flesh bent on saving his people from sin. Bent on redeeming them and reclaiming them from eternal condemnation. And this is what's so wonderful. That all the authority and all of the questioning that was brought before Jesus is answered in Jesus himself. He who was not just a descendant from the Davidic line of kings. He was God himself. God in the flesh. The blood that coursed through Jesus' veins and that was shed on the cross for us. Wasn't just royal. It wasn't just kingly. It was divine. It was God's blood that was shed. When his body was ripped open for us in just a few short days from this very moment. They would realize that it was God's blood that spilled down that brow and fell on that ground of Calvary. Which serves as the remission of sins for the whole world. This is the king. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus. The son of David and the Lord of all. For us. So yeah, he has authority. He is the rightful king of Israel. And he's the rightful king of your life. The one to whom we owe everything. And every question finds its fulfillment in this Jesus. He is the divine solution to the rampant problem of sin and rebellion. He is rightly worshipped as God in the flesh. And yes, even now, he sits enthroned in the heavens as the king on high. The king of all creation. To me, this is what... This amazing truth means more to me in this moment than I think ever. 
The moments of confusion and conspiracies and theories and worries and cares and frustrations and stresses and things happening and things we think are happening and, and it finds resolution in what? That Jesus is king. And he sits on his throne. And he's never going to leave his throne. It's not reductive to proclaim that and sing that and declare that. This is what we hold to. When everything else is crumbling. That what? Jesus is king. Jesus is son of David and Lord of all. When everything around us is giving way, we proclaim this wonderful fact that he is the son of David and the Lord of all and he's our savior. And that's why we can sing, he will hold me fast and it is well with my soul. Because the one who keeps your soul is the one who is keeping the entire universe in the balance. He's the one who's sustaining everything. And he saved you by the power of his blood. He has not left you. He has not left you ever and he never will. He is the son of David and the Lord of all. Let us pray.